We're continuing our series on legends of organic today with a woman who has been shaped by organic and biodynamic agriculture her entire life. We know the impact of keeping nature in our lives, but what happens when an entire life is based on a daily conversation and exchange with nature? In this case, an organic and biodynamic vineyard. We'll get a taste of it today. In Vino Veritas, a woman's journey in biodynamic winemaking. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Katrina Frey is one of the leaders and one of the heroes of organic agriculture. As a young woman, she and her husband Jonathan followed their conviction and took on the challenge to create the first organic and biodynamic vineyard in the country, Frey Vineyards. Her wines have won numerous awards in national and international competitions not just in the organic category, but overall, even in taste tests against highly acclaimed European wines in Europe. But today we want to talk about the human side of organic agriculture, how a daily engagement with nature shapes one's life. That's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation in Vino Veritas, a woman's journey in biodynamic winemaking. All that and more coming up in just a minute here on an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers. More information, batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M dot com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Our focus in this hour is a life spent on an organic and biodynamic vineyard in Vino Veritas, a woman's journey in biodynamic winemaking. With me is Katrina Frey. All that and more is coming up in just a minute. Stay tuned.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Our topic in this hour is In Vino Veritas, a woman's journey in biodynamic agriculture, in biodynamic winemaking in this case. And with me here in the studio is Katrina Fry, the executive director of Fry Vineyards. Welcome to the show, Katrina. Thank you, Helga. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be sitting here with you. I can't believe you made the time in, in this fall as this is by far the most busy time in the vineyard. Or Is the harvest done? Although we- the harvest is finished, and it was another great Northern California vintage. We've been really lucky. 14, 15, and 16 have all been superlative, as, as was 13, actually. So it started very early, and it allowed us to be about 85% done before we had those first rains in October. The only grape that was left out there was Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's got tough skins and can take some some rain, a little bit of rain. And um, so it's all done and wrapped up, and we're actually feeling a a sense of relief (laughs) and... um, but also, you know, a deep appreciation of another abundant, glorious return on yeah, all of our hard work. Exactly. Incredible. You spend, a vineyard is such a, it's not like you have lettuces that you harvest every three weeks or six weeks. You work your entire year and maybe longer and some, you know, building up grapes and all that for this like six weeks or two months window. And if nature doesn't comply, you might lose it all. I know of vineyards who had frost in October and literally lost um, or, or frost in, in in April or May with the blossoms and lost the entire crop for that year. You know, your agriculture is done for that year. Yes, you're so right. Um, 2008 was exactly. completely unpredictable year like that. We had 25 nights of frost in April. And even though yeah. everyone got up and turned on the frost machines by the end of the hardest frost at the end of April, 40% of the crop was gone. And then, um, so, you know, you still had 60%, so people did all the hard work of pruning and tending. And then in June, California, Northern California, was struck with a whole series of lightning storms, dry lightning on the summer solstice. And that left 240 acres of wildland burning in Mendocino County, and they burned all summer long, and the fruit was um, smoke tainted by the end of it all. So we called two thousand and eight. You could, I mean, you really couldn't. Really? You really couldn't use mm-hmm. the, that wine. So that was the year of fire and ice, wow. and not. <laughs> to be hoped for again, that's for sure. So it must be incredible to know, almost like you're, you're a child that spent the first day, all day outside, is back safe at home, to have the harvest in, to to breathe a sigh of relief. Is that the same kind of headache and heartache every year? Oh, it is. It's the By life August, of a farmer. Like <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, for those of us who live in Northern California, Everything is so hot and dry by the middle of September. And the human part of you is yearning for that first rain. But the winemaker part of you is saying, <laughs> Please don't. No, I know it would be feel really good for, for the bodies, but it's not going to be good for the grapes. So let's just hold out a couple more weeks. Well, congratulations. You said this year is another vintage year. It is. What makes it a vintage year? A vintage year is when... The weather conditions allow us to harvest at just the right blend of 
proper acidity and excellent sugars. So bringing the grapes in with high acid, which we can achieve because we live in a place, we're in Redwood Valley in Mendocino, and the nights cool off significantly there. It can be 100 during the day, but then 50 down at night. So those cool nights preserve the acidity, but obviously the hot days allow the grapes to ripen. So if if nice. weather permits sure. that, then you can make these wines with very minimal manipulation, which is what we want to do, particularly with our biodynamic wines. That's our goal, is to not add yeast. They're just fermented with the native yeast. We may do some blending from one block to another, we, of course, also do not add any synthetic agents to the wine in the processing. So we don't use sulfites as opposed to mm-hmm. most winemakers. So and does, does a, does a um, vintage year mean you will have some grapes for your desertage, for your, for your version of the port, which is my favorite? <laughs> right. Helga's our, <laughs> our wonderful, rich, sweet wine fan. We do have a little bit set aside oh, this good. year. Cool. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see how it develops. Check out yeah. frywine.com for more information on Fry Vineyards. Amazing selection of wines. We want to talk about the that exact human side that you just touched on. Biodynamic here in the U.S. was so much less known in the 1970s than it is today. Still, for many people, at least in, in cities, biodynamic is kind of, they, you know, many of them are not fully clear even what organic yet means in detail, biodynamic much less. So what attracted you so early to that concept of biodynamic? And is that still the same that is attracting you every year? I had a childhood that led me into the mystery of the natural world. And even though I grew up in a house with a small backyard in a small town in Michigan. My mother um, had grown up in Vermont and saw fairies and herded sheep and was really a woman of the earth. And she had my sister and me out in our little backyard garden from an early age, and she had us looking for praying mantises in the garden, and she had us finding flower fairy faces in the flowers. And In the summertime, we'd roam through the dunes of Lake Michigan and then get to go on vacation to Vermont, where we got to go into more wilderness. And my grandfather ran a perennial nursery, and my greatest joy in life was working with him in his nursery. So after going to college and moving out to California and finding myself in a lackluster job in social services in the Bay Area, I heard about a place up in Covalo, which is a town in the middle of the county of Mendocino, that housed a garden project led by an Englishman, a horticulturist named Alan Chadwick. So I had the great privilege of moving there in 1976 and signing up to work with him and a crew of 40 interns in a 15-acre garden project. And Alan was a product of classic European horticulture. He'd spent time in Kew Garden. His mother knew Rudolf Steiner, the founder of biodynamic agriculture. And he introduced me to the concepts of French-intensive biodynamic agriculture. 
So that's where I met my husband, Jonathan, and we studied there for a year and a half before we moved back to his family's property. We thought at first we were just going to grow vegetables because that was our primary training. training. Mm -hmm. But um, we soon realized that we had the advantage of being in premium wine country, and there were eight acres of Cabernet grapes already planted by the family. So we took the dive and started the nation's first organic winery in 1980. And what makes it organic, of course, is that the fruit is raised organically, but then when you bring it into the cellar, we process it organically as well. So it's kind of a, a, a strange hotbed here, the wider Bay Area, if we include Mendocino to that, Northern California. Uh, we have Albert Strauss of Strauss Family Creamery being the first organic dairy west of the Mississippi, breaking out of the entire dairy structure of distributors and processors and all that and going organic against everyone's advice. Uh, Warren Weber, who was told you can't grow lettuces successfully on just 10 acres, it's not going to happen, who is now the, the oldest continuously certified organic farm for over 40 years in the state and maybe in the country. And then you guys deciding to become the first organic winery. When somebody really tastes that for a second of what it takes, there's an entire system of winemakers, processors, uh, you know, inputs, chemicals. There's, it's, it's all for many, many, many years an established system. What made you say, you know, we're going to put all this on its head, we're going to be organic, and that means we build our own Uh, fermentation, our own distribution, our own everything has to be has to be different because you can't just piggyback on the existing system. You're you're starting something completely new. What made you be that courageous? Well, a lot of it was our inspiration from studying with Alan Chadwick. We're very founded in the idea of organic agriculture. Part of it was the fact that we were starting to raise a family, and we had young brother and sister-in-laws who were running around barefoot out there in the vineyards. And we quickly recognized that any kind of agricultural chemicals that we used there were going to harm you too. harm them as well. I mean, when I first moved to California, Paraquat, which was infamous for being used against the civilians of Vietnam, Paraquat was the most common herbicide in vineyards in Northern California. Um, And then so I would just say just a, work for you. a streak of stubbornness that we yeah. we knew it was right. We were part of the above-mentioned group of people who had a deep philosophical knowledge that this was the correct way that farming, you're, you're farming a living earth, and you are responsible to that living earth. Is that still what attracts you today, every day? Very much so. Very much so. I'm a gardener, and I get a lot of pleasure of growing flowers and vegetables in my garden. And um, it makes me feel good. And it was interesting. I, I attended Eco Farm last year in Asilomar, and one of the plenary speakers was a physician from Berkeley who is studying the microbes of soil, which is a vast unknown field. I mean, apparently we know less about our soil life than we do about the galaxy that yeah. we live in. But they have identified um, microbes that jump from the soil onto your skin that actually influence your mood. They actually make you calm and make you feel happy. And it makes you realize that 
we are not yeah. separate from the earth. It's it's all bound up together. So in spite of all of the challenges of modern agriculture, there's there's a lot of hope there in the soil microbes. Then just to talk about soil, um, of course, over a billion microorganisms in a teaspoon of soil, that famous quote um, stated by, by many farmers or advocates for soil, and I believe, what, 5% have been mapped at this point? We don't know anything, really. About soil. Isn't that cool? Even with everything that we do know about soil, we really don't know anything. It's the last frontier. <laughs> Talk about the oceans to try our soil. How has biodynamic changed over the years? Actually, before you answer that, let's just, um, it's such a fascinating conversation that I forget to reset. I'm speaking with Katrina Fry in our episode on In Vino Veritas, a woman's journey in biodynamic winemaking. It's part of our series on legends of organic here today on an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. How has biodynamic changed over the years in production as a, you know, as a, as a standard uh, for you personally and for what you see in the public eye? Um, I have to give credit to one of my brother-in-laws, Luke Fry, for envisioning being able to um, run a farm used to, um, with biodynamic methods. Because when I learned biodynamics, it was on a much smaller scale on gardening. So when we started the winery, in spite of the fact that we had researched um, the use of the preparations in um, agriculture, we didn't conceive, we being Jonathan and I, um, didn't conceive of how to make that happen Translate on that. 50 acres yeah. of grapes. and But meanwhile, there was a group, the Northern California Biodynamic Society, that was experimenting with mounting sprayers on the back of four-wheelers and stirring machines and um, figuring out how to do this on a, on a wider scale. So that became available, and we became fully certified by Demeter in 1996, At the same time, um, biodynamics surely but slowly <laughs> entered more and more people's consciousness in the United States. And nowadays, in spite of the fact that it's a difficult thing to explain in a a sound bite, Two minutes, yeah, exactly. It's I think we're not that, trying to today, right? But. but I think that most consumers nowadays mm -hmm. have the sense that biodynamics is a good thing. And a desirable thing. And what I see in the standard is that it's it's not only a good thing, it's a force that will actually transform agriculture and can transform society as a result of that. Yeah, what, what I like about it and love about it and understand as at seeing the farm as a living entity, and you alluded to that already in the beginning, seeing soil as a living entity, but really the farm, and you had mentioned before we started the show, 10% of farmland by, by the standard of biodynamic has to be reserved for biodiversity, cannot be farmed. That, that could be a significant piece of land that could not provide income if you have some riparian habitat where you wouldn't farm anyway, good for you. But based on the farm, committing to 10%, leaving that for, for wildlife, for biodiversity, not being farmed, that's a big contribution that biodynamic standards require. And of course, with moon phases and looking at, at the cycles of life and nature, it's so 
incredibly uh, deep. There's so much knowledge in biodynamic that, yes, this show couldn't even be doing justice just to talk about that for an hour. But you mentioned something that it's not a standard that is 100 years old, that is you know kind of an, an old concept and people still try to to apply it today, it is actually maybe the most progressive and most modern way of approaching agriculture, going, of course, beyond the organic rule, uh, because you just mentioned now Demeter just approved a carbon sequestration standard. Yes, Demeter USA has decided that as part of the each annual inspection of the Demeter farms throughout the United States, they'll will be a soil sample collected at that farm. And we'll send it to a lab to be analyzed for um, the amount of carbon in that soil to show the net gain the net gain of carbon sequestration. So we'll acquire data, and our assumption is going to be that after we get the baseline soil samples, we'll see an improvement in soil. But I'm I'm very excited about that because there's such exciting progress in that proper agricultural um, procedures such as low-till farming and the application of compost, disturbing the soil as little as possible, allow carbon sequestration. And what that means is it's it's literally sucking CO2 from the atmosphere, putting it back down into the soil, which is our Earth's largest carbon sink. And that's where the carbon belongs, down there. And it's the only one we can really measure. Of course, there's the ocean, but that's much harder to get to and uh, manipulate or, or manage. So soil is really our most exciting and existing uh, carbon sink, as you said. And we're working with soil in this country and around the world anyway through agriculture, right? Of course, we could grow forests, but we are involved in food production. Every one of us eats. So how we manage the soil can have a significant, if not decisive, impact on climate change and, and CO2 uh, numbers in the atmosphere because of that natural ability to pull carbon back out. There's a soil scientist at the University of Ohio, Dr. Lal, and he has estimated that if two-thirds of the world's arable land had an application of an inch and a half of compost, that would actually suck enough CO2 from the atmosphere to bring the whole earth back to pre-industrial revolution levels of CO2, which is astounding. But to me, it's so interesting because it doesn't involve a technology that hasn't been invented yet. It it involves some political will to make that yeah. much compost <laughs> <laughs> and to apply it. But, you know, it's a it's a sound solution based in nature. And it I mean, and of course, one of the other net results would be that it would make farmland more productive. Yeah, because we're talking life in the soil, right? Mm -hmm. Carbon sequestration means life in the soil is absorbing the C2 and the formation of the life in the soil. So you get better soil and you use the CO2 in the atmosphere to be pulled back into the soil where, it's built, where it belongs, where it should be. Um, and that is Ratan Lal, uh, University of Ohio, if you look up the study on soil carbon sequestration potential. And this is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and I'm speaking with Katrina Fry of Fry Vineyards. That's frywine.com on 
the role of nature, of that daily engagement of nature and being on a biodynamic farm for much or most of her life, how has that shaped her as one of the legends of organic, one of the heroes that we have in this movement? We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back with so much more, especially the role of women in agriculture. Stay tuned for more. And we're back here to an organic mm. conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. My guest today is Katrina Fry. She's one of the leaders and one of the heroes in the organic agriculture movement. Uh, she and her husband, Jonathan, followed their conviction and took on the challenge against all odds to create the first organic and biodynamic vineyard in the country. Fry Vineyards. Again, the website is frywine.com. Katrina, let's talk about the role of women in agriculture. It's interesting how in this country, from subsistence gardens, you now have from 50 acres, a thousand acre vineyard, winning award after award. But even on, a, on an international scale, uh, women, after all, account for 70% of the food production in the world, much less so here in the U.S., uh, even in, in specialty food production areas such as wine. How do you see the role of women in agriculture? What's What are we missing as men who have such a different approach to the land? Well, you know, I, I am not the trained winemaker of Fry Vineyards, so I didn't enter into the role of winemaking. And there are successful women in winemaking now, and there's various associations. Um, you're right that if you just look at statistics, there are more men farmers than women. And probably a lot of that has to do because of our industrial agricultural system, which involves monster tractors and combines and a, a lot of mechanics, which is in this country, at least, you know, the venue of men traditionally more than women. But at the same time, there are very influential women farmers, particularly, again, in Northern California. I mean, you've got the Full Belly Farm where you have Drew Rivers and Judith Redman, and they have both provided a lot of leadership to the organic agriculture. Um, their friend and, and my friend Annie Main at Good Humus Farm has um, been a, a great teacher and intern over the years. And then Gloria Decatur, who also studied with Alan Chadwick, she and her husband have Live Power Farm up in Covalo. And I admire all of these women greatly. And, you know, there's there's also women involved in policy and farm politics, such as Els Cooperider, who is Mendocino County's heroine. It was Els's idea to craft the non-GMO bill ordinance that passed in Mendocino County in 2003 that bans the planting of any genetically engineered crops or raising of genetically engineered farm animals. 
I think it's it's great, and I imagine you know there's there's a lot of professions that change over the years. When my mother-in-law graduated from med school in the '50s, she was one of two women in her graduating class, and now there are more women than men doctors, apparently. So you know, I I think it's I I can see it changing, and um, well, you're bringing up the question of technology. You just touched on that a little bit that. Even though the world in the world, seventy percent of agriculture is done by women with little technology. Here in the country, it's mostly predominantly men with technology. And what's what's the relationship that you have with technology? If you can even you know describe that, maybe not in detail because there's so much. But what's the role of technology for Fry Vineyards, for example? Well, at Fry Vineyards, we own a thousand acres and we're farming three hundred acres. And we use tractors, and we use mechanical harvesters now. And that has to do with a couple of different factors. I mean, it has to do with the fact that the world, or our part of the world, has lost its knowledge of working with draft horses, even though we, my brother-in-law, Luke, does have some horses, but they're not highly trained, and it's beyond our scope to think of of mm -hmm. doing the necessary plow plowing with horses. So we use tractors, but we use them with a full consciousness of the um, negative impacts that they are having on the soil. I mean, every time you make a pass with a tractor, you do, to some extent, destroy the mycelium textures you, of you the soil. You com compact the and, soil. And right? the, the, just the pure weight uh -huh. of the soil yeah. compacts it. So you know, you want to measure it. So you want to make sure that you plant your cover crops with the deep rootlets that will break up that soil compaction. You can go through with a ripping bar to prevent soil compaction when you plant a new vineyard, or to not really to prevent it, but to rectify past compaction. You know, I think we just have to be smart in how we use our yeah, technology. It, it sounds like It's not an, a, a general, I mean, of course, pesticides and all that have no place on an organic or biodynamic farm. But if we talk about technology in form of a tractor, there is a care of considering truly what we should as a, as a country, as a culture, in anything that we develop or invent, uh, what, what are the possible negative impacts on life, right? How, how is this helpful tool, is it moving towards life or away from it? Right, which part of it will will um, infringe on life or even destroy life, and how can we mitigate that, knowing that already? It's on, it, it seems to me with any new invention, we celebrate it, and then five years later we find out the consequences. Sure. feels like biodynamic is this really fine-tuned feedback loop of already questioning what that does, just a really careful look at, well, okay, we have to use a tractor, we are not... We can't, we can't do horses, or we, it's beyond our scope right now. And what are all the benefits and what are all the possible consequences and what do we need to do about it? So it's still being held. It's not... Absolutely. And one of the quickest ways to look at it is, you know, what fuels that tractor. And there's some, a lot of people out there working on electric tractors now that can be um, with solar panels on the roof. So there's... Um, so beyond biodiesel... Beyond biodiesel, right? Because biodiesel has its societal consequences as well. So. Yeah, great. 
I want to talk about this harvest a little bit. The harvest is in for this year. You've been doing this for the, for a long time. What's the difference of this year, and not so much in weather, but what what are you still learning, like year after year, doing more or less the same, and yet it's never the same? That's a beautiful way to put it. And um, for me, agriculture is a creative process, and I am continually inspired, and I have new ideas and new insights about agriculture. One thing that we're really focusing on is how to how do you actually know when a grape is ripe, um, the physiological characteristics of that grape, and we're looking at the seed within it. And so, you know, as you're deciding whether a grape is ready to pick, you're tasting for the sugar and the acidity, but you're also biting into that seed and trying to understand the nuttiness quality of it and what determines whether a fruit is properly properly ripe. So that's wow. one thing. <laughs> but I also have been really noticing the leaves falling down and thinking about that process of regeneration on our soil. So we don't we don't have oak trees in the middle of our vineyards anymore because of the root competition and the shade competition. But we we do have oak trees that are sometimes over roads, and so those leaves that, the internal roads on the vineyard, those leaves that are falling down on those roads, we are making a conscious effort this winter, this fall, to rake them up and incorporate them into the compost piles that are consist of our animal manures and our leaves, and then, of course, the skins what, and why seeds do you, why left. Why do you do that? Um, because we can generate magical compost, which um, brings a full spectrum of necessary... Um, it's not exactly food to the soil, but it allows the various micronutrients in the soil to be available to the plant rootlets. Well, it sounds like the stewardship of your land, like really the, the incorporation of all elements because they are there and seeing the value of each you know, mushroom and each fallen mm -hmm. leaf is, has become your approach to life too. Is that true? It has. Um, is that difficult um, in this time of society? Well, sure. I mean, you can take a a macro view and a and a micro view and sometimes the micro view reassures me more than the macro view of society but but it also gives me hope you know um because biodynamics says that the farm organism has needs it has fertility needs and in a well-run system those fertility needs can be met with the resources of the farm And so you, you're always looking at how to recycle the nutrients that are alive and part of your farm. And you can take that same picture and look at it in terms of the world and, and food production. Yeah, the, the biodynamic principle is that you are not relying on outside inputs, right? You don't buy fertilization. You have to create it 
on your farm. Or that's as, such a it, self-generating principle. Yeah, as little as possible. I sure. mean, you know, a biodynamic farm becomes more mature as the years go on. And when you first start out, you really don't necessarily have all those resources. So within but the you farm with the awareness standard, but you, that that's you the farm direction. with the awareness that every year you're going to work towards soil and farm system improvement. Yeah. And you're right. That's a beautiful metaphor, if not beyond metaphor, principle for not extracting all the, the, the beauty of this world for what, right? What's the direction we are taking as a society or as a... In, in politics, how can we preserve and create value out of everything? I'm speaking with Katrina Fry, the executive director of Fry Vineyards. Again, that's frywine.com, the first organic and biodynamic vineyard in the country on more the human side of engaging in that dialogue with nature on a daily basis. We're almost out of time, but I do want to talk about the next generation, the most valuable lessons that you would perhaps, or the message that you have for a young generation under the backdrop of we're losing about a million farmers due to retirement within the next 10 years, the average age of the U.S. farmers, 58 or 60 years. And we know that out of the 2 million family farms, 1 million will reach that retirement age. At the same time, the average income of the U.S. family farm is a negative $2,000 a year. So we're losing half of our agricultural base, and nobody should be excited to go into agriculture because you can't make any money. And yet we still have young people believe that it's possible and that that is the lifestyle they want. And of course, we more than applaud them in that. We need way more young farmers to come back to the land and, and make organic agriculture their career and their lifestyle. But what's, what's your message knowing all this? Well... I agree. We need you, <laughs> everyone listening out there. And um, it's it's a good life, um, even though it's hard work, but it's very rewarding. And there are some fascinating new groups of young farmers. There's an organization called the Greenhorns, which you can check out online. And they have a lot of practical information about um, farmland availability. That's a huge issue, especially in California with how expensive land is. And then there's the whole Grange movement, and there are Grange farm schools, and they are attracting a lot of young people in the United States. And there's various internship programs available. So when you say it's a beautiful life, looking back at yours, uh, no regrets that that was the path? You feel it was a great gift? I do. I really can't imagine not living where the weather matters, not not living a life that is divorced from nature. I mean, truly none of us are divorced from nature, but um, it's nice to be able to wake up every morning and think how you can actively contribute back to your farm. Well, on that note, where else would we stop? Thank you so much, Katrina. I know uh, this time, especially of the year, as we said in the beginning, is the most intense time harvest is in. And as in the last two years, it's an amazing year. Again, check out frywine.com for the varietals. When will this year's harvest be available? It takes a year, right? To the white wines we start releasing next May. 
Oh, so really? the 2016 white wines will hit the market then. The reds um, will be a couple of years as they age you and too. Oak meld. And all that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Need to be so right now, we're <laughs> if you went to our website, you'd see wines with 2014 and yeah. 15 vintages. Yeah, great. Frywine.com. Thank you so much for making the time and all your wisdom. And I already look forward to having you back soon. Thank Thanks. you so much, Elke. <laughs> it's Katrina. been a delightful conversation. Thank you. That's Katrina Fry of Fry Vineyards, Executive Director of Fry Vineyards, the first organic and biodynamic vineyard in the country that she started with her husband, Jonathan Fry. Big shout out to the entire Fry clan. And we are switching gears from winemaking back to the fields of vegetables, where Katrina Fry started. Here's the consumer segment, the update from the produce dock of what is it available this week, how to buy it, how to store it, and what to do with it in your kitchen. Here's what's in season. And with us, as always, is now the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrig of Earl's Organic Produce. Earl, are you there? Hello, Helga. Hello. How are you doing? I'm, I'm actually really good. I'm loving, I'm loving this season. Layers of clothing and cooler nights, which help me sleep, and tea and candles and the foods that I'm used to from Germany. What yeah. is that change in the produce dock? And the change on the on the street is is palatable. Uh-huh. You know, the, all the excitement and the and the colors and, and the fragrances of, of summer and fall are, are gone, and you're you're kind of digging in deep with citrus and apples and pears, mm-hmm. and then winter squash and all that. And those are all fantastic things. And the other thing that becomes more and more prominent that we're going to talk about today is the potato scene. Ah, nice. And but you know, potatoes have been around forever. And it's one of those North American crops, and or at least America, America's crops. And they've, when I first got in business in the late '70s and '80s, uh, one of the uh, families I was doing, which I was doing business with, the Farsadis, and she was the first grower that I dealt with that, that had the yellow fin potato. And uh, that was kind of back then the first variety outside of your. You know, you rush it, your red potato. You, it was this yellow fin, which tasted like butter. And since then, it's just been an onslaught of different varieties. They just keep on coming. And it's interesting because corn and potatoes, I know there are thousands of varieties, maybe one of the most diverse crops or plants you can have out there. We have thousands of potato varieties. Mm-hmm. Luckily, you're saying we're seeing at least a dozen or so back in the marketplace of what yeah. was one or two. I want to focus a little bit on, on those fingerling types. Yeah. There's uh, a couple of names I'm going to throw out there, a purple fiesta and a uh, ruby crescent and a red French, and, a, and then there's a banana one. Most of these are very, very dense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're great for salads because they hold their shape, and I, I, like to, I, I think they make an incredible uh, mashed potato, but some people don't like them because they're not particularly fluffy. They're kind of like dense, but... Boy, they are something else. Because for me, I put a lot of other things with mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Any anything that's around, I will throw into a mashed potato. So those those are the four that are coming around now. What's 
what's nice for in the marketing aspect of those and, and other potatoes is is now there's the bag potato, which has always been around for the russet, but the these fingerlings you can get them in a they're in a pound and a half or a pound and a quarter, and they're small and they're and rather than have to pick through, it's a really convenient thing. And and the and the potatoes that they put in there are generally uh, uh, number ones, other than the the shape is sometimes a little funny, and the shape for uh, any of these fingerling potatoes, they're what, why they're called fingerlings. They look like finger and joints and different little objects, but they're an incredible potato. And I would recommend if you've never had one, this is the time of year to start eating them. And you just, I mean, they they cook quicker, right? Because of their their smaller. Um, they yep. they roast quicker. They're just really easy to manage. You can you don't need to wonder if you need two or three as an as a you know adult male. I I do ten and then see if I can eat yep. the rest next day. They're just <laughs> a little bit easier to handle all around. You don't peel them because the yep. you just right. wash them well. How how has the rain changed the availability? Not really. Has it's not you affecting. Know, you know, it really hasn't. The you know the potatoes we see out here in California. They're Mostly northern California up to Oregon and Washington, and most of the most potatoes are going to be harvested in July, maybe up until the first of November, and they flourish under most any kind of weather. What they don't want to do, you don't want to keep in the ground to the point where it's now uh, there's a frost. You don't you don't want to do that, but you can keep them in the ground up until and they store best in the ground uh, up until you get a frost. What many growers do is they will They will monitor the crop as it's growing and, and dig and, and go around their field and dig up different potatoes to, to look at the sizing because what they don't want to do is have them get too big. They will outgrow the size because potatoes can get too big. So they monitor them by occasionally digging some up, and when they get to the just to the point where they want them, they, they kill off the plant above the ground, and then... They allow about two to three weeks to go by, so the the potato gets to cure, and that the curing is the process of the skin getting a little firm because otherwise it's going to scuff up and not be attractive. Mm. And the killing of the plant means the chlorophyll is sh shut off basically, and they just lay in yeah. the ground to to cure to harden off a little. Yes. Now some people just use a, a device and, and and cut off the plant, and other people. Are going going along and, and using propane and burning it because sometimes when you cut it off, it will still grow, mm -hmm. and that means the potatoes growing. And you basically, you're, what you're doing is stopping the growth. Right. So, from a consumer perspective, what do you do with them at home? Do you the the endless question of do potatoes need to go into the crisper or because yeah. most of us don't have a, a root cellar anymore? Right. What do you well, do? You know, yeah, you want to keep them in a dark, mild place. They don't necessarily have to go into a refrigerator. But if it does, you want to keep them. You don't need to keep them in the coldest part. They store really well, but you don't want to keep them more than, you know, a couple weeks. They will get soft and they will sprout. And that's, those are the two things you want to look for. If you're walking down the aisle, you don't, you don't want to be purchasing sprouting or uh, very soft. It should be a very firm and kind of bright-looking uh, potato. Now, bright on a russet, it's a brown color it's white potato so you're not necessarily going to see a brightness to it but again you want to pick it up and it should be uh you know very solid in your in your hand once they sprout at home um do you know if you can still eat them or they just change flavor or they they're no longer edible well you know 
what I've heard, and you could probably speak to this better, is I've heard that the Europeans don't buy them until they're already sprouting. Sprouting means that it, one advantage of sprouting is that it's, it's losing its moisture, and and uh, that is one of the things you want to have. You want to have a, a, a lower moisture potato. But for me to answer your question, I just knock the sprouts off and I eat them. Uh-huh. Not a problem. Not yeah. a problem at all. Great um, potatoes. Lots of varieties. Lots of heirloom stuff back in the stores finally. And prices are stable because the rain didn't really affect the crop, yeah? No, you know, there's a good crop this year. You're going to find some, some good pricing anywhere from, um, you know, a dollar, uh, one ninety nine a pound uh, up to like two $2.99. The more uh, exotic, like the fingerlings, might be a little more expensive. Mm. But I would also take advantage if you see any that are in a bag or in a net. They're, they're going to represent a little bit of a value. And, and it's, a, it's a fine way to store them, too, when you take them home. The interesting thing about potatoes is they're kept like like, kind of like an apple under, under highly uh, high-tech storage. So they monitor the oxygen and the temperature and everything. Mm-hmm. But what I've been told by people that know a lot about potatoes is that the potato knows what's going on outside of that storage unit, meaning... If there's a mild winter, <laughs> no I, I know it's silly stuff. If it's a mild winter, potatoes will sprout early. If it's a cold winter, they do not hardly sprout at all. But the fact is, they're outside of that environment. They're in the storage already. No, oh, that's so brilliant. So, nature, so, nature knows. Yeah, there's something going on there. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. That is so out. interesting. That's great. <laughs> yes, we can't trick potatoes. We can't even trick potatoes. We can't trick the That's voter. Right. We can't trick potatoes. <laughs> All good. That's Earl Herrick. Right, Thank you, Earl. And um, will you feature different varieties on your website or Facebook page? Yes, absolutely. That's we'll earlsorganic.com. Of course, the website, check it out for up-to-date information of what is hitting the marketplace, what to look out for, and how to best buy it, earlsorganic.com. Thanks so much for the time. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you, Helga. Awesome. Take it easy now. Thanks, you too. Take care. Bye. Now. Bye. And then sums up another hour of an organic conversation. Katrina Fry on biodynamic and the impact of one's life. And, of course, the update from the world of produce. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Take care. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate Producer, Kristen Ponger. The show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com.
and Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers. More information at batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. Our Twitter handle is Talk Organic, and we're also on Instagram. I am Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>